0: Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode.
1: Who's going to pay that woman's bail when she goes to jail? Who is going to pay legal fees? You know, that image has weight, that image has a cost. And those are the things that we need to think about before the shutter ever clicks.
0: Fashion models and celebrities are compensated when their images are published, but what about the protester being arrested at a demonstration or a soldier wounded in battle? I'm Michael O'Connell, this is It's Old Journalism. Back in June, photographer Fernanda H. Meyer gave a presentation for the New Orleans Association of Black Journalists entitled The Paradigm of the Human Zoo in Photojournalism, Ethical Implications of Photojournalism and How to Report Authenticity, Avoiding Stereotypes and Socially Inappropriate Imagery. I did not get to attend the presentation, but it seemed more than worthy of an in- invitation. Asking Fernanda to come on the podcast to talk about it. Fernanda, welcome to it's all journalism.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So to start off with, how long have you been a photographer? What what got you into being a photographer?
1: Interestingly, I think I've always been a photographer in my mind, and. Even as a child, my mother enrolled me in photography courses at a local community center because I was a bit of a rambunctious kid in class. And I was, at the time, one of the only children in that class. I was in class with late teens and early 20-year-olds, and I was completely taken by the idea that I had this cool school activity to do. And I remember making my first pinhole camera and developing actual paper prints and developing negatives and continued on through high school and then in college took a bit of a break because I was way more interested in sexual relations and the things that people do in college like drinking. and it wasn't until I would say my mid to late 20s when I started to travel more extensively that I got back into it both film and DSLR. So the first time I was actually paid for my photography was in my early 30s, late 20s. And I have absolutely no shame to say that I'm 43 now. And it's been about 10 years since I've been able to make a living from writing and making images. So I think it depends on who you ask as to when I became a photographer. But to me, I've been a photographer forever.
0: Yeah, it's nice that your your mother found something to occupy you that, that turned into a Something that became a, a light for you to follow in, in your life. To be clear, though, they wanted
1: me to be a doctor. <laughs> oh, well,
0: of course. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Oh, she's a photographer.
1: Right. She, it, she I, had the
0: grades. She could have gone in to be the doctor, but she true. decided to be a. The first
1: print I sold, I sent my mom a copy of the receipted invoice, and I was like, Look, it's a thing. I, I'm not going to be a destitute, starving artist for the rest of my life.
0: Oh, uh, take a picture of like a, a doctor's license or something. Make your mom <laughs> happy. Um, right. So, what type of stuff are you writing? What type of stuff were you using your photography to report?
1: Mostly human interest stories. I am originally from Ghana. and moved to the United States in the 80s and have been back many times since, but in my travels both to Ghana and to other places, one of the things that has fascinated me the most is that I am traveling and moving and consuming from the lens of somebody who was raised primarily in the United States and going back to the places that I lived and grew up in, it's really opened my eyes to just how different the world is and how privileged I am and we are. And that sparked something in me from a journalistic perspective. In a piece that I wrote for Shondaland, I talked about how I actually feel safer traveling abroad than I do in the United States. And the reason that piece even came to be was through a series of unfortunate events that didn't have unhappy endings, but rather had happier endings than they would have had I been in the US. So I started speaking to people from the hostels that I stayed at, or the natural landscapes and parks that I went to, and even to some of the staff that work in my family's home and work in my family's home. And as I was traveling and making images, I discovered the idea that Consent is key, not just in physical relationships, but in photographical ones as well. And that really is what kicked off a lot of what I write about and what I like to make photos of.
0: Interesting. So where did you get the inspiration for the Paradigm of the Human Zoo, the presentation that you did?
1: I actually took a workshop in a series of classes from a wonderful, wonderful author and travel ethicist named Bonnie Amor. And in this coursework, it really made me rethink and reframe how I'm approaching what I am making images of and also how I approach travel in general. So when the average person thinks of travel, they think of getting on a plane or getting on a cruise and going on vacation and enjoying their time away from work and enjoying their life away from, you know, their quotidian responsibilities. Well, what we don't think about is that when we go on vacation, everyone else is working, whether it is the staff on the cruise ship or the people who work in the kitchens that cut up the food that you eat, that are presented in those beautiful Instagrammable acai bowls, for example. And so in this coursework, it really made me rethink the concept of the human zoo, which is not something that either of us came up with, but that has been written about extensively primarily in the context of colonialism and how in travel and tourism, the roots of that come from the British Empire touring their conquested land. And so that set off a light in my head and really made me, as I said, rethink how I approach travel, but also how I approach writing and photography. And it made me re-examine the lens, pun intended, from which I view the
0: world. It's interesting. You mentioned colonialism. You also kind of touch on, I guess, what's now referred to as American exceptionalism. And also this idea of Orientalism, that people in other countries, aren't they funny or aren't they interesting because they do things that are different, but... In a way, when you view things like that, you're not seeing them, validity of their lives and, and their perspective and the uniqueness of who they are. You're only viewing them through the, the lens of, you know, colonialism or the, the outsider. That's something we talked about on the podcast in terms of foreign correspondents going in and covering stories that are really big in a particular community, but covering them from the perspective of the country that they're from.
1: That's absolutely correct. And they are also covering it from the perspective of look at this thing over there and not humanizing it as an experience that we may all have in common, but we just may not have bombs being dropped on us, for example. So I think also of war correspondents who find out the most bombed out areas or most destructive areas. And then record from there. Meanwhile, if you were to turn the camera, you would see that there is a thriving, bustling city behind them with people grocery shopping. So especially people who are going to war-torn or conflicted areas, something that they need to focus on is what is it that you are setting up for everybody else to see? Because if it's just the most decrepit and broken down and unfortunate areas, you are creating the mold by which other people's ideas are going to be shaped about those people in that area and it's unfair frankly
0: yeah and it's also it's problematic especially in the visual media where if it's just text the person has to read the text to get the context but quite often we see photos we see video with no sort of explanation and our mind sort of tries to deconstruct them from our perspective. So unless somebody tells us what they mean or what the context is, I mean, whatever our prejudices are, whatever experiences are, is how we're going to judge something.
1: Absolutely. And I often think back to the commercials of feed a poor child in Africa for just 30 cents a day. And so when we came to the United States and I started going to elementary school people would literally exclaim surprise that I was not some skinny, dark-skinned kid with flies in their eyes. I used to get questions like, did you ride a zebra to school? No, I was in a vehicle with air conditioning. <laughs> you know, the only wild animals I was ever exposed to until I started traveling as an adult were in zoos. And so the prejudices that you mentioned are ingrained from youth, and we carry them all the way into adulthood and children are just frankly more open about their line of questioning adults hide it a bit more but those same biases and those same images that we've grown up with you know carry on forever and until we break them down and really examine what those biases are or even that we have them it's not going to change and thus is the paradigm of the human zoo we are curating and creating images that are a digital or visual zoo as opposed to looking at the totality of the human experience and the people that are behind them.
0: How do you, you know, imbue the photos that you're taking with authenticity? How do you represent the story that you see and you witness from that perspective, that place?
1: I am now, I I wasn't always, I am now a staunch advocate of speaking to the people that I am photographing, I am also a staunch advocate of getting their consent. If in the event that I do take a photo that is far off and I'm not able to speak to or communicate with the person to let them know, I go to them and show them the image and say, hey, I made this image of you, may I use it, may I get your information, I would like to know more about you, et cetera. Part of the reason why I even wrote this workshop, if you will, is because of a young man that worked for my grandmother until she passed away. I was at home with her, actually her 80th birthday, and there was a young man in the yard who was chopping coconuts for the birthday party. And I was just so taken by his musculature and his skin tone. And he just, the man was beautiful, frankly. (laughs) And the work that he was doing was just so physical. He had what looked to be a dull machete and was effortlessly chopping the tops off coconuts and pouring out the coconut water and then cutting you know, the husks down and separating the meat. The whole process made, he just made it look so effortless. And before I asked him to make his picture, I did. And then I showed him, I said, oh, look, this is so great. Your arm looks so and you know. And he just kind of gave me this look like, okay, And then he said, what do you do for work? And I explained to him that I'm a writer and I do marketing and, you know, mostly computer-based. And he said, well, how would you feel if somebody stood over your shoulder and was taking pictures of you typing on your computer? And I said, that would be weird. And he said, well, that's what you just did. And I was, I mean, blown away, Doesn't I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed because such a simple observation really made me reconsider every image of every person i had ever taken up until that point because here he is performing his everyday work duties and here i am glamorizing them and exoticizing them and it changed how i felt about how i approach photography but also how i approach the people that i am making images of and so as he chopped the coconut we had a conversation Ultimately, it led to me being able to use this picture, but, and I had to send him the photos that I took, which he gladly used for his Disney profile. So it ended up being a great story, but it really made me rethink how I approach the people in the images that I made, and I thank him for that forever.
0: It's interesting. what you, What we're talking about, some of the things you mentioned in there, I think open up a lot of questions for photographers and then for editors who are doing assignments and who are choosing which images to illustrate a story. Coincidentally, uh, I interviewed uh, Shannon Fold, who's a podcaster and a news broadcaster, a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about how she would go out and cover the protests in Beirut and shoot some video and go live, do live stream on Instagram and everything. And one of the things you just sort of off hand state offhand statement where she said, you know, I try to show the things that aren't being seen elsewhere because, you know, a lot of times the photographers who take pictures, they're looking for the people who are the protesters. They're the ones who are making the most visual representation. But the people who are out here marching aren't like that. The photographers are looking for that good shot. They're not looking at it from a storyteller's standpoint or a representation of truth. I wonder in situations like that, not that there aren't powerful photos that can be taken from a group that's maybe (laughs) calmer than, than one would imagine. But I I wonder how the editor then thinks about, well, these aren't particularly dynamic photos. These aren't, we're just saying the protest and happened and it wasn't really peaceful.
1: Well, and I think therein lies the issue is the editor looking for dynamic images, but at whose expense and for whose benefit. So as a black woman, I am often confronted with the idea that I am the token in any image. I went to a predominantly white institution for college. And when I tell you that they would stalk me at campus events to be in their images to represent the university, as a photographer, I was always on the lookout for somebody's lens like poking out between two shoulders because I knew that they were looking for me to be in this promo picture. And this is a phenomenon that people of color have faced on predominantly white campuses since time immemorial, since desegregation. But when we are covering protests or when we are covering war or when we are covering even tourism, we're always, and by we, I mean the royal we, looking for that dynamic, exoticized, different image, because it serves the sensationalism. It doesn't serve the actual story. It doesn't serve the people. And that is a challenge that we have to confront as journalism people and as photographers, is who is it for? And then there's also the compensation issue. We don't even talk about that. You're looking for dynamic images and editors want the flashiest thing or that one moment when somebody's got their hands up and there's a police officer with a firearm raised at them, but who's going to pay that woman's bail when she goes to jail? Who is going to pay legal fees? You know, that image has weight. That image has a cost. And those are the things that we need to think about before the shutter ever clicks
0: people own their experience they own their their image and in a world where you can have you know somebody in minneapolis they have the police uh, like kneel on their on their back on their neck for a period of time and then that image is sent around the world and sort of changing so many things changing perspectives in so many ways there's power and you know how do you compensate someone how do you you know how do you put a price on that How does it work?
1: Well, firstly, we have to talk about it. And I think of Shabat Gula, who was the woman with the eyes on the National Geographic cover. In the time since that iconic image made its way to the cover of Nat Geo, she has had to seek asylum in three different countries. She's now living in Italy with political asylum, but had to change her name, was smuggled out of Iran and Palestine. She has had one of the most terrifying lives, trying to flee persecution, not because of the image, but because that image catapulted her to a level of infamy, that she was recognized everywhere she went, and her family was persecuted and chased. And meanwhile, the photographer who made that image is a millionaire, and is now making similar images of people all over the world and hosting gallery exhibitions. And so there is something to be said for the pushback on compensating someone for their image. But what about the person who does not have any skin in the game as they say, makes the image and then goes on to make millions? Like there's an ethical challenge there that needs to be examined. And could the photographer have gone out of their way to maybe like I don't know. Compensate her at a later date? Sure. I don't know. But if he did, we don't know about it. That's not something that's ever been publicized. But this woman was on the run for 30 plus years of her life after that image was taken. And he flies first class. So just in that dichotomy, that is a conversation that needs to be had and one that I don't see many people even talking about. So whether or not we're paying people to license their image, there's just so much more beyond what happens after the image is made and then who benefits from
0: it it's interesting that publications and media do pay for for imagery all the time they pay for it for advertising there's certain sort of celebrity or feature coverage where you can't use somebody's image unless you pay them a certain amount of money so it's not like this is like just out of the blue i mean you know it's the compensation and what What's the uh, publication, let's say publication, is willing to do in order to tell those types of stories? Just from a sort of a bald news ethical standpoint, I think, you know, a publisher, a newspaper publisher, newsroom editor is going to argue that, well, I'm covering the news. And, you know, if we do our job, if we cover an event and we take pictures of people who are in public, they don't necessarily have an expectation of privacy you know i don't necessarily need need to ask their permission to take their picture because they're in the midst of a news story in in a moment i guess is the best way to put it it would be different if i were following them and stalking them and taking pictures without the context of it being a quote-unquote news story cuz i think that would be sort of the meat of that argument that we're performing a service so service for who well, that's just it, your audience. <laughs> well, let me, let me talk this through. I, I know where you're coming from. So we're collecting this information. We're, we're reporting this information to inform our audience. But there are ethical considerations if, you know, everybody who's in a picture comes up to us and says, well, I'm part of this huge story, but you can't use my image because I don't give you the right to it or you need to compensate me for it. Yeah, no. There are lots of <laughs> there are lots of angles on this conversation, as you describe it. I, I think there's so much validity to it that it sort of makes you wonder why. Why aren't we having this conversation about it?
1: This is fabulous. I'm glad we brought it up because two protesters from Ferguson were coming up on the 10 year anniversary, which is so wild to me. For those who are listening and don't know, oh my god, Ferguson, 10 years. Yeah, oh Ferguson god. protest kicked off after the murder of Michael Brown. Two of the protesters in some of the most iconic images from those protests have since been found dead. In addition, three additional protesters who rose to notoriety because their images were made and they were interviewed have been arrested. Many are on FBI watch lists. And it would stand to reason that the people who have been killed, one was found in a burning car, another mysteriously the body was found potentially self harm, but we don't believe that for a second. They rose to fame, if you will, because of iconic, those were the words that were used in the news stories that ran iconic images that were made during the process. Can we say with fact and certainty that they would still be with us if those images didn't exist? No. But there's absolutely no way that the FBI and everybody else in the world who knows their faces or remembers the image of the gas can being thrown back, nobody would know them if those pictures weren't made. And the photographers who made those images, right place, right time, absolutely. But the ethical conversation has to happen about at what cost. You get this great picture, you might win a prize for it, you may get a promotion for it, but now those people aren't with us because you wanted that dynamic, iconic shot. So having the conversation is important. I don't think we're going to solve the problem on this podcast.
0: (laughs) We could, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I don't have a lot of time here today. Go on. (laughs) I don't think that the the amount of time we need, I don't think I have. Oh no. no,
1: volumes and volumes of books at this point and podcasts. But I bring that up to say that is yet another aspect of the human zoo is the political and personal cost of the images that we make. And did Darren Thiel and Edward Crawford authorize those pictures to go into those newspapers and magazines? Or did they find out after the fact? And I can tell you that they weren't compensated for those images. And now they're not with us. So it's just this cascade of ethical conundrum. And I think that it's something that we need to talk about frequently, especially as it relates to the race, class and societal implications of the images that we make and the stories that we tell about those events.
0: Yeah. And we haven't even really talked to, I think you kind of like (laughs) were signaling me that as I was sort of talking about a reporter going out to cover something, who are they, you know, covering it for, because if recent years that have taught us nothing, that while there may be some great actors, some good actors out there trying to report and use their skills to change the world in a positive way, there are other people out there who are looking to reinforce, you know, stereotypes and are looking for a particular imagery that says something that may have a, a different point of view. In the 2016 election... There was a photograph, I remember, that was going around on Facebook from Ferguson, and it was showing, like, two black men walking down a street with rocks and, like, handkerchiefs around their mouths. And the image was being used by, you know, which they discovered later, was being used by a group that was trying to influence the election in a particular way, and the way the text that was with it, the way the image, the power, it was a powerful image, the way the image was presented was encouraging the person who was looking at it to be afraid. So the imagery can have multiple messages, but how they're used and what context, if people just don't sort of challenge their perceptions of things and question what they're seeing, It's very easy for them to be manipulated.
1: And to that point, we've all heard and read that the average American, big air quotes for those of you who don't have video, the average American reads between a sixth and eighth grade level. So it also stands to reason that their comprehension, whether it's of an image or words, is also falling within that range. So if you are presenting an image one way without additional context, or because you're on your phone and you're scrolling, or you're on your iPad and you're scrolling, or you're being auto-fed loaded images from a website that you're viewing on your laptop, there is no additional context. So using your example, you'll see two black men with handkerchiefs over their faces holding rocks, but it doesn't say anywhere that they are holding rocks that were just thrown at them, that they have now picked up and are taking with them. Right? Whether or not that was the context of the photo, we don't know. But I'm saying so many things happen leading up to that picture. And unless the photographer or the writer says, this is what happened before this image was taken, and this is the significance of this image, no one is ever going to know. And they're going to draw on all of their own preconceived notions to determine what they think that picture is. And so it's as much on the photographer or the journalist as it is on. The consumer, because that's what we're doing. We're consuming images to figure out what this is and challenge their own biases. But people don't, because it's an extra step. Challenging your biases means you also have to recognize that you have them. And that's something that a lot of people don't know to do and aren't comfortable doing.
0: Thinking back to that image we were just talking about, I mean, that was a loaded image that it almost sort of demanded context. I'm not saying the people who were using it were like the smartest people in the world but you have to realize because the other way to look at that is if you just go out and shoot that image and you don't as a reporter as a photojournalist you're not thinking about well who these people are not necessarily that image but any images that you take what their real story is you taking their picture ties them to whatever the larger story is so there are plenty of instances where people you know They're walking home from work and suddenly there's like a big breaking news story going on around them. They're not pursuing something specifically to be in the story, but they are. And so depending on how you represent them in that in your coverage of it, you know, they may have an outside role in a lot of people's perspective about what that story was about.
1: I agree. And I think that that is one of the most important reasons why we should actually be speaking to people and not just making images of them. So, again, if you do make an image of a group, for example, there's no way you can talk to everybody in that group unless you've got a megaphone and you can say, hey, everyone, I just took your picture. Come over here and give me your name. That's not a thing. (laughs) No one's going to stand in a line to fill out a photo release. Right. But what you can do is if you have made that image of those two men, even from a distance, maybe perhaps try to find out what the context is, instead of portraying them in such a way on such a large scale that could be then later used for nefarious purposes. So once the image is made, that's not where our liability ends as photographers. And that's another thing that we have to challenge ourselves with, just because we've got the picture doesn't mean everything is over and that you can go home and la-di-da, hunky-dory. You never know how that image is going to be perceived or accepted outside of your camera unless you actually speak to the people or persons in that image and try to convey from the subject's point of view what that image entails. And that's the thing that I think happens a lot in photography is, oh, I've got this great picture. My job here is done. And in many cases, your job should just be starting.
0: This is almost unfair. I keep going back to the one award-winning photo of the, I think it was the child who was a war refugee who was dying. And, you know, the photo won awards. And it it sadly illustrated the the plight of what was going on and the impact. And it was meant to be shocking. But it's like... Who would take that photo? Why would you take that photo? or do you understand when you're taking that photo that do you shut yourself off? And I'm just doing the best that I can in a moment here to cover something and to represent something
1: to that point. do we not already have millions of images of children dying? Do we not we don't have that image have, <laughs> that we don't have that image? No. But we have images of war torn countries, and children, and body parts. And, you know, with Oppenheimer coming out, I keep seeing images coming back from when they were shot immediately afterwards. And there was one that I saw recently of a child, a black and white photo of a child laying on their front and all of the skin and hair on the back of their body had basically been melted off. And I cried. And this picture is 50 plus years old, but I felt like I was standing there next to this baby. And I don't need to see recent photos like that from the Ukraine to know what's happening in the Ukraine. I don't need to see images of what's happening anywhere else in Myanmar or starving children in Ethiopia and Sudan. I can read a story about what's happening there and based on the thousands of images that I have seen about similar stories because we as humans love to repeat our evil history, I know what starving children look like. I don't need, quote unquote, to see that again. And so part of it is, do we really have to have images of every single atrocity that humanity commits or every single waterfall that a tourist sees in Bali. And the replication and duplication of images in my humble opinion, creates a desensitivity. So we are now seeing images, we're not seeing people because the images are so familiar, so familiar. It's almost difficult to tell one from another over time. Is this a picture of somebody being harmed in Vietnam? Is this a picture of somebody being harmed in rural Alabama where there isn't any running water? You know, so it begs the question, why do we need to see these images? And again, who do these images benefit? And does it not contribute to our, oh, that is such a terrible thing that's happening, but I'm in my air-conditioned home in New Orleans, and so I get to just wipe past the picture, or I get to just Close the tab and then it's no longer a thing to me because it's not
0: here. Right. You I, have I, the con- control is... to hide that. Correct. So you, don't, and they you don't have to think about it. And people get upset when they see something that they, they didn't want to see or that it somehow disagrees with what they're going to see. Coincidentally, not too long ago, I was watching a documentary about Lincoln the, the Emancipator. They're sort of rethinking that whole thing. And during the the documentary as a documentary series, one of the episodes, and this is something I'd heard before of Matthew Brady's photos from the Battle of Antietam. Photography was so new that there were not other photos. And it was the power of those images being shown publicly that for the first time, people like in New York City confronted the reality of the situation. And however they acted or however that changed perspective made them act then that would not have happened without that trigger of the imagery which again shows you the power of of the medium
1: oh one thousand percent i say all the time that photography is me capturing moments of time and that's not something that we can often do outside of maybe live recordings of music or you know somebody painting live if you will at an event it's A privilege. It is powerful. It is something that gets me out of bed in the morning. But it is also something that I have come to realize is not about me. It's about how my image lives in the world, if it lives in the world, and who sees it and how it affects them. And so when I started photography, I focused on people. And then I didn't like people as much. And then I started traveling. And so I started making images of plants and animals and landscapes. And sometimes I would hike two, three hours, even sometimes days to get a shot. And the satisfaction of getting that shot after such physical labor and mosquito bites or, you know, stomach discomfort, whatever I went through to get it was great. But as I'm now making images of people again and A lot of them here in New Orleans, and I do a lot of event photography, I'm always thinking of myself, to myself, how are these images going to be perceived? Now, if it's an event that I'm being paid to cover, that's one thing. But if I'm out in the world and I'm walking, if I'm in Paris, or if I'm, you know, in Thailand and I'm buying clothes or textiles, and I see a woman making said clothes or textiles, previous me would have just made the picture and kept it moving. Me now, I'm asking if I can make her image. I'm asking if she wants a copy of the image. I'm asking if, should I use this on my website? How do I get in touch with you? Because I'm going to sell this print and I need to compensate you for it. These are things that the average photographer, photojournalist isn't even thinking about beyond the picture itself. And that's really the point of the workshop in this conversation is we need to think introspectively, and we need to like develop some self-awareness around this because from an ethical perspective, we are desensitizing and, and, and dehumanizing other people and places by not doing so.
0: Fernanda, you've given us a lot of things, provocative ideas to mull over. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I think we'd need a long time to sort of talk this all through, but... Man, what you did share, you know, it's got my gray cells moving. But thanks again for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer, Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.